Hey, I'm Stephen Hovatter, the lead minister at Central Church of Christ in Little Rock, Arkansas. Our goal as a church is to follow Jesus together. So we gather on Sunday mornings for Bible study at 9 a.m. and worship at 10, 15 a.m. And you'd always be welcome to join us. To learn more, go to arcentralchurch.org. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon. Good morning. We did have a great time on the float trip yesterday. Um, although if Chad is going to come back and tell everybody what happens on the float trip, I don't know if you're going to be allowed to go on those sorts of things anymore. You can't come and tell all our wives that dangerous things happened while we're gone. That's part of the code, right? Part of the code. I have shocking news for you. I am not the center of the cosmos. Now that may not be as shocking to you as it was to me to find this out. Um, you may have never had such, uh, such an issue with whether or not Stephen was the very center of the universe or not. But you may have had somebody else there. It's pretty natural for us to think of ourselves so very much and to easily place ourselves at the very center of everything, to interpret the world. What I mean by this is to interpret the world in relation to how it affects me. To interpret things that happened in the world, whether on the basis of how they impacted me, whether they made me happier or more sad, whether they made me uh, full of hope or made me despair. It's just easy to interpret everything on the basis of how it affects us. It's the most natural thing in the world. And yet, for those who come to Jesus, we begin to understand the world in a somewhat different way. There's a text in the beginning of the book of Colossians that says, he is the image of the invisible God, Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, whether things visible or invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things and in him all things hold together. <coughs> Excuse me. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether things in heaven or things on earth, by making peace through the blood of his cross. 
for those of us who are Christians, when we give up the notion that we are the centers of the universe, we have something left there instead. The universe does have a center. The cosmos does have a central unifying point. And it is Jesus the Christ. The ancient Christians used this symbol of a wagon wheel to represent what Christ meant, not just for them, but for the entirety of the cosmos, that Christ was at the center holding things together. And if by this point you're starting to think, my, my, didn't see the series on friendship starting with such an abstraction of theology, I'm coming to this question. What would happen? What happens to friendship when we think of Christ as being at the center or if we think of Christ as being between us? Now, most of us believe that we can interact directly with the world, that we see it as it is and can one-to-one. What we do with the world has a direct um, correlation with the way that it really, really exists. But in this ancient theology that says Christ is at the center, suggests something else. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian of the last century, um, wrote a book called Christ the Center, where he uh, pulled it together for me in a very helpful way. In other words, where he, he suggests that every person who's a disciple of Christ learns to relate to the world, everything in the world, not just directly, but to relate to the world through Christ, as if all our relations to the world go through Jesus as though he were between us. If you imagine the picture of the wagon wheel, instead of going from two out points of the circle directly across, it was as though if you want to travel from one point to the other, you must go through the center and back out, right? And this is the way Bonhoeffer thinks about Christians relating to everybody in the world And what if that becomes the primary way that we think about relating to each other as friends? I think there's all kinds of implications for that. There are implications that help us in the way that we think about friendship. The first one is that if we think about Christ as between us, then we will see each other with the eyes of Christ. Now, That in itself is so fundamental to what discipleship is. I mean, I I think we maybe should have started here in the first place. As a group of people who are trying to follow Jesus together, in the same way that the early disciples followed Jesus together, think about how many times on the journey they were in a place or a situation where they were presented with somebody and Jesus helped them rethink who that person was helped them rethink the reality of that situation. Think about the blind man that Jesus encounters in John chapter 9, and his disciples look at him and they say, 
Jesus, who was it that sinned in this situation that brought about? Because in their mind, they see this guy who has this uh, disability and they think he must have done something wrong or somebody must have done something wrong to create this unfortunate situation in his life. And Jesus dispels them of that notion. No, this, is, this isn't because of any of that thing. And in fact, what's happened here is an opportunity for you to see the glory of God. And then by healing him and going through this process, it turns out that the disciples weren't the only person that saw this person incorrectly, that Jesus confronts the entire community now as he's made whole. There's other situations like that. The only time in the gospels that we're ever told that Jesus became angry was not when Jesus flipped over all the uh, uh, tables in the, in the temple courts, but it was rather a time when Jesus went to the synagogue and there was a person there who had a withered hand. Jesus had him stand up in front of the crowd and said, you know, you tell me, is it, is it? And it says that everybody was wondering, is he going to heal him? Because it's a Sabbath. Surely he's not going to heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus looked around at the crowd and said, you tell me, is it right to heal or not to heal on the Sabbath? Is it, is it okay? Is it better to bring life or not to bring life? Right? He says Jesus looked around at them with anger at their stubborn hearts. Jesus is trying to say, don't you... Don't you see this person correctly? He's not just a technicality of the law. A person isn't a technicality of the law. This person ought to be seen as this situation is an opportunity for them to have life. This is something new and different. Jesus is challenging. Jesus even challenged his disciples in the way they thought about dead people, right? He encounters a girl who's, who has died. He's taken to the, her home and she's died. Jesus says, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. He tells Mary and Martha that their brother Lazarus will be raised from the dead. And they say, oh yeah, we know that on the last day, eventually he'll be raised. Jesus says, let's go to the grave right now, right? So in the eyes of Christ, as the disciples follow Christ around, they encounter all sorts of different people. And every time Jesus helps them rethink the way that they should see them. There's a, a rich man that comes and wants to be his disciple, but Jesus asks him if he's willing to sell everything he has and give it to the poor and then to come and be his disciples. And Guy goes away sad and Jesus says, oh man, how hard it is for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And his disciples are sitting there going, well, that's not how we saw the situation at all. We saw a guy that wanted to be your disciple and he was bringing his checkbook with him. Here, please fill out a membership card. Jesus says, yeah, you can come be my disciple after you give everything away first. I'm sure that the disciples who were looking over the accounts were going, well, maybe he can keep a little bit with him. If he's going to be joining us, it might be a guy. It might be nice to have somebody with us who's got a full pocketbook, right? 
Jesus looks at him and says, you know, that guy wasn't ready to be one of us yet. Everybody has to be seen differently. And some people are going to be seen in as more valued because they're being seen with the eyes of Christ and other people that have things that they may seem like make them more valuable. Jesus says, well, they, they do have value too. Jesus actually wants this guy to be his disciple. He just can't bring all the things that were externally valuable to him on the way. When we have a friendship where two people are even a friendship with somebody who's a disciple with somebody who's not one. One of the things that happens is that Jesus retrains our eyes to be able to see people differently. When we were canoeing yesterday, one of my like internal things that's happening the whole time, whenever I do something like that, I look and I, I judge how murky the water is, partly because I am terrified. This is so silly. I am terrified that I'm going to drop my glasses in somewhere along the way. And I go, well, I think I could probably find them here. <laughs> or if we're in a deeper part and it's all, you know, it's kind of green, I'll be like, oh man, if I drop my glasses here, I'm just blind for a week, you know? <laughs> Because the things that help me see, the things that allow me to see clearly are invaluable to me. They are invaluable to me. And it is Christ that helps us see each other more clearly. In Romans chapter 14, this text that we read in our classes a few weeks ago was a, a text about what it means to have some sort of dispute, a, a, in this case, a technical religious dispute with some other people within the church. And in that text, part of what Paul has to do with his Roman brothers and sisters is help them remember how to see each other a little bit differently. Normally, when we have a dispute with somebody else, we tend to think of them in the terms of how they're affecting us. You are somebody that is offending me. You are somebody that is hurting my feelings. You are somebody that is making things uncomfortable for me. And Paul in Romans 14 at several points offers different ways of thinking about the people with whom we have conflict. Maybe the most important is the way that it starts. Read with me in Romans 14. In verses, the first four verses, he says, welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe in eating anything while the weak eat only vegetables. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain and those who abstain must not pass judgment on them. And then he says this, who are you to pass judgments on servants of another? It's before their own Lord that they stand or fall. And they will be upheld for the Lord is able to make them stand. You see the way he's recalibrating the way that they see their brothers and sisters in the church? 
You're just thinking about them the way that they affect you. But don't you understand who they are before God? And if Christ is between us in this relationship, and I think of you in terms of the way Christ thinks of you, the first thing that's obvious is that you're Christ's servant, not mine. Who am I to act as though you're the one that's supposed to be directly in service to me? You're a servant of Christ Jesus, and so am I. Later on uh, in the text, there is uh, something that Paul says in a, a few verses. A few verses later, there's people that have are somewhat uh, have a different opinion on us in this matter. They are people for whom Christ has died. It says, "Read with me in verse 15." If your brother or sister is being injured by what you eat, you're not walking, no longer walking in love. Do not let what you eat cause the ruin of one for whom Christ died. That's a different way of seeing someone, isn't it? And imagine if every person that you ever encounter, you have the memory that Jesus himself died for that person. Stanley Hauerwas, a theologian I've mentioned before, who was a very annoying pacifist in his theology, has posed the question for Christians who go to war or who support it, what we do when we look down the sight of a gun and see not just an enemy, but a person for whom Christ died to give them life. I find that to be very challenging. And if it's challenging in that most dire and desperate of situations, it's no less challenging in the ins and outs of daily life. The people who are interacting with me, if I could only learn to see them with the eyes of Jesus. I would not see them just for the way that they interact with me or the way that they change and shape my life, but I would see them as people who are worthy of the very life of the Son of God. How can it be? I wouldn't come to that conclusion myself. I only come to see them that way when I see them through the eyes of Christ. When I enter into that friendship with Christ there between us, teaching me, discipling me about what it means to see them in that way. When we see each other with the eyes of Christ, then we come to forgive each other with the grace of Christ. The Colossian letter says this in chapter 3 and verse 12, as God's chosen ones, holy and compassionate, holy and beloved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness and humility and meekness and patience. Bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just 
as the Lord has forgiven you. And this admonition, I mean, it really puts a different perspective on the different sorts of petty things that we start to hold against each other. I just, I just can't, I just can't find it in my heart to forgive them, right? I just can't get over it. And yet there, that conversation changes significantly if Christ is there between me and the other person, doesn't it? How much harder for me to hold on my rights of grievance against a brother? How much harder for me to insist that I will not let something go when I encounter my brother through the person of Jesus? The Christian tradition always calls us back to forgiving, to forgiving other people by reminding us of the forgiveness that we have at the hand of God ourselves. And anytime we relate to another person in terms of Jesus, we're always being reminded that when we see each other with the eyes of Christ, that we also are called to forgive each other with the grace of Christ. That the thing that we have received, we pass on ourselves. We always have more to give. We may try to outgive each other or out, outdo each other in showing forgiveness, but who among us would have the audacity to suggest that we have shown more forgiveness and grace than Jesus has for us? And there is always more room to give more grace to each other if we think of each other in the same eyes of Jesus. The writer here, of course, goes on with this word in Colossians and, and speaks about not just, uh, not just forgiving each other in that way. He goes on in the next verse to say, above all things, clothe yourself with love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in the one body. Be thankful. Forgiving each other and being committed to showing grace to each other is a step towards learning what it means to love each other. To love each other with the love of Christ. And I don't know, you know, it's a chicken and egg sort of thing, grace and love. And I don't know if it's that we first begin to see each other with grace and that teaches us to love or we begin to commit to each other to love each other and that teaches us to show grace to each other. But my suspicion is that they kind of work in a circle with each other. And the more love that we show towards a person, the more able we are to show grace to them. And I think it's also true the more that we treat people with grace, the more that we default to mercy and forgiveness, the more we are opening ourselves for the love of Christ to go through us towards other people. Seeing each other, forgiving each other, and loving each other. It's really all part of the same thing, right? It's part of taking on 
the posture of Jesus towards each other. Learning to relate to each other in terms of who Jesus is. Do you see the kind of community that this kind of ethic produces? Of course, as we started off, and we can't help do it, we start off thinking about what it means for us to be the ones that love and who see and who show grace and kindness. But can you imagine also what it means to be on the receiving end of that? What if the people in our community of the church, what if, what if we really committed to living by this sort of friendship, friendship that causes us to relate to each other as Jesus relates to us. In that sort of life, it turns out that I don't know just the one Jesus, but it turns out that my friends who are called in the name of Jesus begin to become Jesus's to me as well. And before long, those people who are disciples of Jesus are all treating me with the same love and kindness and grace and mercy that Jesus has treated me with. Jesus is all around. I start meeting Christ in the face of my brother and my sisters. After all, where we started in Colossians starts with that kind of idea, right? Jesus is the one who was the firstborn from among the dead. But he wasn't the only one. Jesus is the one in whom all things hold together. And that means that everybody I meet becomes a vehicle for encountering Jesus there too. I wonder, I wonder about those early disciples that spent those years following Jesus, who grew to love him, who grew to have such a, a life-changing experience in receiving from his wisdom, receiving his grace, receiving his kindness through their lives. I wonder how long it was after he was gone, before Peter or John or James or one of the others was spending time at a table with some of the other disciples and thought something like, I do miss him dearly, but you know what? You have come to remind me of him. I mean, isn't that why they were gathering together in the first place so much? Because in gathering together at the table of Jesus, they were in the place that reminded them of who he was. Isn't that why we come to the table still now? All the old tables used to say what? This do 
in remembrance of me. Because Jesus' wisdom, which became the wisdom of the church, was that when we gather with each other in his name, we are forming the memory of him among us. A memory that changes the way we treat each other. So that we treat each other, we treat each other as Jesus would. And that's kind of what it all comes down to, isn't it? I'm so grateful that in my life, that I grew up going to Sunday school and grew up going and singing the hymns. I'm so glad in my life that I grew up in a family that taught me about Jesus. And I am also grateful. I am grateful to God that not only did I grow up in a family that took me into those religious forms, but I'm grateful that I have always lived in communities of friends that didn't just talk about Jesus, but who showed me Jesus the way that they loved and cared for me. This is who we are called to be for each other. It only happens as the spirit of God moves among us and day by day shapes us as we follow Jesus together. Let's pray together. Oh God, we who are called by your name want to live by your spirit. And we pray that you would teach us more and more to see with the eyes of Christ, to forgive with the grace of Christ and to love with the love of Christ. Father, so that your people can show each other and our neighbors what it means to be children of God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.